Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and today I have Dr. Jim Chatham, Dean of the School of Christ-Centered Counseling at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. How you doing, Dr. Chatham? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for asking, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. I am too. This is an important topic. Today we're going to be discussing anxiety and depression in light of, well, quite a year that 2020 has been for everybody with uh, unemployment, with the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, with civil unrest in major cities, lots of people out there, anxiety is on the rise, depression is on the rise, people are disconnected from their family and their friends, everyone's walking around in masks. And you teach a course here at Trinity on depression and anxiety, but uh, for a lot of people, and, and you're also a professional licensed counselor as well, but of course, a lot of people can't get to, to, to their therapists uh, or their counselors because of the COVID-19. A lot of people um, are out of work and can't afford sessions. So uh, as just in general, I wanted to talk to you today about some biblical principles that people can do to cope with, let's say, their anxiety. So I used to have panic attacks myself. Um, mm-hmm. and then I, I, I got on, uh, medication for, for a while. Um, I, I haven't been on it in, in a while since, uh, I got in better health, but yes, um, mine was kind of tied to that. But for other people, triggers for anxiety may be financial or they may be other things. So if you could, what are some basic principles that people can, can do to cope with given everything that's going on right now? Well, I think one for all of our listeners to understand today that what I'm saying is general. There may be some specifics that people could have some things that they really need to sit down with someone and talk about it. They really need to. And so what I'm going to do is kind of general. And again, I admit up front that I will not be able to cover every nuance associated with each listener's depression and anxiety. But I do want to focus, and as you and I discussed in preparation, to make it as practical as we can. Accessibility to counseling in this current culture is is very intriguing. Uh, As you mentioned, I still see a few people maintain my license as a professional counselor. And a lot of what we're doing right now, we're doing FaceTime. And that means that I schedule uh, appointments Uh, And I do I don't do many a week, maybe four or five, you know, something like that. But I have to to maintain the other. Uh, And so uh, I'm doing a lot of them by FaceTime. If someone comes to my office, they have to sign release forms. They're not allowed to sit in waiting rooms and things like that. And that varies, by the way, from state to state. There is no national ethics law per se. So in each state, you know, whether you're in pastoral counseling or some blended form of counseling or you're neuthetic or you're, you know, totally secular, whatever, you need to be familiar with the state laws. That being said, during this time, it's very important that people understand some of the triggers associated both with anxiety and depression. So let me just list a few of those and then you know, depending on the trigger, then that allows someone to have some understanding as to how they might develop better skills, not only for their own lives, but to help others as well. So, you know, 
There's some research today that indicates that some anxiety is driven by genetic components. If you want to know that, all you have to do is sit down and, you know, kind of write out like a family tree. It's called a genogram. You write down your mother, your father, your siblings, and then go up to your grandparents and your uncles and aunts and go up. And if you start noticing, well, you know, dad was really anxious and grandma was notorious. We understand maybe there's a little DNA component here, a genetic component. If that's the case, then what we have to do is be aware and we have to be proactive. And with that, we, there's a part of your brain and mind called the fight or flight mechanism. God put it there. It has a very good purpose. If your house is on fire, you know, the brain activates and, and, and tells your body to secrete adrenaline and you do supernatural things. If a bear is coming, you know, you might need that. But the problem is in today's culture, if someone has a tendency, now notice I said it's not determined, it's not determined, it is a tendency. So what that means is, is I might in my life have a tendency toward anxiety. There's just some way, and there's no test you can really go do that indicates, you know, well, you've got 28% of your anxiety is driven by your, you know, your, your DNA component. You know, there's, you can't do that. But even if a, if a believer has a tendency toward anxiety, you can be proactive and say, okay, I have a tendency. So that means I need to do some things. And I need to recognize that too often the fight or flight mechanism in my brain is too active. And so what you can do with that, there's some basic things that a person can do. And I'm going to mention two or three triggers and then let you zero in on some others. Um, you know, if that's the case, then then breathing exercises can be very helpful. I do, I'm not in to Middle Eastern mysticism, and what I'm sharing today is not that. But, you know, just to slow down the brain, one of the best ways you can do that is breathe in through your nose, count to four, just breathe in into your abdominal area. That's important. If you If you breathe up high, you have a tendency to gasp, and that can cause the brain to be more active. And so what you would do there is, is, is just breathe in through your nose, counting four, hold it in your abdominal area, counting four, exhale through your nose, counting four, and do nothing counting four. And what that does, the counting stops the brain activity, you know, to a large degree. Uh, then all of a sudden your emotions are slowing down because the brain is slowing down. So you have more space to process. Now what I like to do to add to that, is to breathe in and imagine I'm connecting more with the Lord. You know, he's there and I'm slowing it down. If we have a lot of false voices yelling at us, such as, well, you know, you're hopeless. There's no way you can do this. You don't have the skill sets. Your mom is driven by anxiety. It's pretty hopeless. You're going to be flooded by that. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They get flooded and false narratives take over. If I can slow down that fight or flight mechanism in my brain, slow down my cognitive processing, then that allows me to stop and connect to truth. And the truth can be, if I'm anxious, you know, the Bible says, you know, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Most people have read that in Philippians 4. So I slow it down and rather than listening to the false narratives, then I can simply say, you know what, God has it covered. I may not understand it, but he perfectly loves me. He never departs from me. He never forsakes me. He does not abandon me. And I can trust him now to work it together for ultimate good. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point cuz cuz when I when I find myself struggling with my own panic attacks um 
you're always self-focused. You're not really Christ-focused mm -hmm. at that at that point. So, so when, when you're self-focused, it's hard to think your way out of the problem, even if you're uh, intellectually aware that nothing's really happening to you. You can't think your way out of it. So yeah, that. But I think that what's important is to have a solid spiritual life in general. Uh, yes, because if you don't, you're not inclined to think first about your relationship with Christ. You're thinking first and foremost about yourself when you're, it's, it goes back to that fight or flight. It's me. I need self-preservation yes. instead of being preserved in, in the hands of, of, of God. So that that's, I think if you're, if your spiritual walk is not settled in a and following after a pattern where it's a part of your daily life doing these spiritual disciplines i think that's going to be much harder so I'll, i think some of that being able to do that would seems to be have a solid spiritual walk have a solid uh, plan of, of practicing spiritual disciplines so that your mind goes to christ first instead of do yourself first is that um, is that that would be preventative in a sense, wouldn't it? What you're doing is is in addition to breathing and slowing down your brain processing, so you can connect with truth. Uh, I mean, you've seen people who learn to swim, and they they got in the water and they were swimming, but then they got out of the water. They were standing on the side of the pool, and somebody surprised them and knocked them into the water. And all of a sudden, what do they do? They panic. They can't think. Okay, lay on my abdominals. You know, bring my hands forward. Kick. They panic. And that's what can happen to us. So you want to be proactive in taking care of yourself with slowing down the brain. And then you want to be filling your heart and your life with that, which is reliable, which is truth. I'll give you a scripture to support what you've been talking about. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about two guys. They both built houses. Apparently the houses were pretty much the same house. The big difference is you and I know one was built on rock. And one was on sand. And so when the storms came, the one built on sand didn't endure. Every one of us are in three stages, of either one of three stages in life. Either we're in the midst of a trial or adversity, we're coming out of it, or we're preparing to go into another. How I will handle today the stressors, the uncertainties, all of the things that are going on are determined by my being proactive to take care of myself you know, in terms of the spiritual component. So I'm building my house on the rock. Jesus made it pretty clear. The storms are going to come. You know, things are going, are going to happen. And, and the guy that was ready for the storm did what? He built on a solid foundation. And that's what we always, how I'm preparing now determines probably how I will endure the next trial or adversity I face. And again, that's a great sermon if somebody wants to develop it into one. I never have. But, you know, the thing is, is that you're, you have to remember you're preparing for what's coming in life. And so breathing, and you can do this, the breathing thing I was talking about, you can do that. You might ever, every, if somebody's really battling anxiety, they might just do that every hour on the hour, do that in five times until they kind of get accustomed. And eventually what happens, you can actually just start breathing and thinking about the Lord and things will slow down because you're conditioning yourself, you know, to do that. Now, let me insert one thing very quickly here to protect everybody. There are some people who have extraordinarily elevated anxiety at certain points. And so they probably need some additional help that would be involved one-on-one -on -one interaction with a good, solid, you know, uh, Christ-believing counselor. And everyone can get overwhelmed at times. And I, I don't want anybody to feel guilt or shame. So if, if somebody's feeling overloaded, 
it's all, it can always be very beneficial to go and talk to somebody who can, as much as anything, listen to you. So I don't want anybody to think that what we're sharing today, it, it's always absolute, but preparation for life right. is critical. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. As far as the, um, the, the breathing technique, that's some, is that something you would recommend to people or, or even clients uh, so forth? People who deal with anxiety in general, should they, should they practice those kind of techniques when they're fine so that they can? Yes. Yes. As part of the proactive preparation, let's suppose somebody is struggling with sleep disorders and we weren't going to talk about that, right. but you know, what people need to do is develop a sleep hygiene and with a sleep hygiene, what you're talking about is it's a certain time you start easing down your life. You realize what those stimuli, what the stimulants are, excessive light, things like that. Don't watch things that trigger and stimulate. You may have to stop watching some news stories. You may have to not watch certain shows, but you know, you get into that. And, and when you lay down, breathe, instead of focusing on the woes of the day, prayer works great. And while you're praying, just breathe to slow down your body, slow down your mind. And that's like, breathing is a great sleep technique. I know that some people could misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not talking about some mysticism. I'm talking about a physiological thing to where when, you're, when your brain realizes that you got the threat covered, it slows down. And that's all you're doing. You're slowing it down so that you can, can, you know, make yourself more aware of the presence of God and that he's got this covered. He's not surprised. Uh, the word, the words that are never said in heaven are, well, we didn't see that coming. That is right. not a statement right. in heaven. And so it slows it down. And rather than listening to the false narratives, the false voices that God's not going to come through with you, you know, you're, you're going to be starving. You're going to be out here begging on the street or your wife's going to leave you or your husband because you're not making it, you know, all those false narratives that can take off. You're just slowing it down so that you can replace the false anxiety producing narratives with truth, which is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities or any of those things can separate me from the love of God. And so you're going to listen to the false narratives that are triggering you are the true narratives which are assuring you. And, you know, as you're breathing, you're slowing down yourself physically instead of reacting so much physically. And you're allowing your life to be controlled by the truth and the presence of Christ. And the more preventative uh, measures that you take and build up those disciplines, the easier it is to to switch that on when the anxiety hits, correct? Absolutely. And in addition to that, you know, anxiety, I, sh I would be remiss if I didn't stress this. Anxiety can, can be the result of sin. Uh, example, here's someone who's involved in a sinful pattern in their lives, whatever they're doing, you know, and they're feeling anxiety because they sense they're not in right relationship with God. And maybe they're sensing that I don't feel as protected. Is God going to come through? There's no way God can going to bless my life with me living with a sinful pattern. And, and so as a result of that, what we have to do is be honest about the sin and say, you know what? Here's why I'm in this situation today, because I, I did or something I shouldn't have, or I didn't do something I should have. And, you know, the, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If I think a lot of people I deal with, if there's anything that they seem to fall short on, is the sufficiency of the death of Christ. Mm. And, you know, he died for our sins before we were ever thought of by anybody else. My greatest need, your greatest need, everybody's greatest need was taken care of. If he took care of that before anybody else even knew I was coming on the scene, how much more can I trust him today? 
And so maybe I need to go make something right with someone, but I definitely need to go before God like David did when he committed his, his, the horrific thing of what he did with the adultery and the murder. You know, he was in torment until he was confronted and he dealt with the sin. And then, you know, he began to realize, and then he began to realize, whoa, God is there. And so sin can produce obvious anxiety, shame, and, and what I would call justifiable guilt, you know, in the life of a believer. You know, if, if I'm wrong, I need to sense that. I need to make it right. And I mentioned the physical side. I mentioned, the, you know, the spiritual side. I mentioned slowing down the brain. Another thing that's really it seems to be generating a lot of anxiety today is isolation. Mm. And, uh, you know, we need to connect with safe people, people who share our values. You know, there's a text in, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth that says, be not unequally yoked. And, and we have a tendency to only apply that to marriage. As I understand it in my life, it's not only my marriage. And by the way, I've been married to Glenda. You've met her. We've been 46 years. And, uh, but on the other side of it, you know, I, I have to have friends that I connect to. And they have to be safe. And, and those connections are good for me. In fact, detachment can, can generate massive depression. And when we feel isolated, it's very, very, very unhealthy for us. Yeah. So in COVID-19, of course, and with the, the, the social distancing and the lockdowns, certainly these sorts of issues with depression spike. And, and, and people who never really out of themselves as suffering from depression could find themselves with it, right? So They could. So, uh, you know, you had brought up earlier that you're doing this sort of Zoom meeting, FaceTime, Skype, whatever, with, yeah. with, uh, with your clients. Um, I, I'm curious as to, this is what we have to do because of what's going on with the pandemic. It's, it's, it's you know, it's not preferable. What, what is lost without the, you know, if, if there's a screen barrier, if there's not, you know, you're in the same room or you're, you're, you're close to your loved ones or you're visiting with family, mm-hmm. what have we lost by not having that, that, that physical connection and how do we cope with that so that, you know, we don't feel so <laughs> isolated and depressed or anxious for everything really because of what's going on well as a counselor when i mention counselors i'm referring to pastoral counselors i'm referring i'm referring to all people who are involved in effective counseling whether they're licensed professional counselors licensed social workers whatever all of us are trained to watch for cues the simplest cue with anxiety would be someone is talking to me and they're telling me they're feeling very anxious and they're really fidgety you know they're wiggling their hands and they're crossing their feet and they're squirming you know those are all signs of anxiety that their brain's very active and the body is responding to that and so if they're sitting like this you know you don't know what's going on and in that context what you have to do is to say, tell me what's happening with you right now physically. Are you noticing any shortness? So you have to ask. I mean, how's he going to find out? Right. Are you sensing any shortness of breath? Do you notice if you're twiddling your thumbs? Do you notice if you're having trouble sitting there calmly? You have, unfortunately, and see, before I didn't ask that because it made them more self-conscious. 
And if I'm working with someone one-on-one, I'm not going to ask them that a lot because I want, I want those cues for me. They become a, a simple, you know, they tell me kind of what's going on. The body keeps the score. And one of your biggest revealers of stress, anxiety, depression is your physical presentation. What's going on inside comes out, you know. And so when you're talking with people, you need to, you probably going to have to ask some more specific questions to be sure as all the biblical counselors know, which I teach at Trinity, uh, that we're gathering comprehensive accuracy. So you may have to ask, tell me what you're feeling internally. I think the second thing, and this is a danger that you have to watch out for as a therapist. You don't want to do too much of the work, okay? If I'm doing all the work and the other person is not doing any, you know, we're not getting anywhere. They're becoming codependent on me. And when I'm detached from someone, the temptation is to really like, can you see I care for you? Do you sense that? And, you know, you're just really talking 90 miles an hour and doing those sorts of things. So you have to maintain a calmness. And it's always helpful to, to have some good questions there just in case you need them. It's good to say, hey, listen, I, I think I caught what you said a moment ago, but that was so significant. Can you, can you go through that again with me and let them know you're connecting with them, but don't make them dependent on you. So, you know, that's one of the dangers of doing, you know, even now, I mean, would it be better for the listeners if, if, if I could sit down with each one of them and we could talk about this and they could throw their specific questions at me? Sure. It'd be much more focused and probably more meaningful then. So what you and I are doing is general. And that's kind of what you, you know, you have to watch out that you're communicating to people true compassion. I try to pray before a session. Oh, God, reveal yourself through me. You know I'm limited. I can't see their 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 you know some of their body functions. I can't you know tell what's going on. I mean I even look at people's clothing. Like if somebody comes to see me and they're really you know grunged up, not taking care of their personal hygiene, that's very telling. You know. Yeah. And so, so but you know, it's like I've known to, and you. I, I'm not going to confess for you, but I've been known. You know, when we've taught live webinars and when I've recorded, I'll be sitting there in a shirt and tie and have on pajamas. You know. <laughs> nobody knows that but you know I've done that or in shorts or something so as counselors and 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 people trying to be there we have to find legitimate ways to build involvement connectivity but not do all the work we have to present them and as a biblical counselor we can still insist on the homework we can still insist on you know we can still confront and do those things that are a part a necessary part of a healthy counseling relationship. The other thing I think we have to be aware of is ethical, and that is confidentiality. Like what you and I are doing today, Zoom is known to be vulnerable to hacking. I don't do any therapeutic intervention with Zoom. Um, I do only telehealth because right now that seems to be the most reliable. And so I would suggest that, you know, that people, you know, be aware of the ethics of, us maintaining confidentiality and, and, and protecting people and even pastoral counselors are under that as well. One other thing I would say this for, for people who are in pastoral roles, whether they're teaching pastors and, you know, even now the, the churches that are meeting, they, the people can't hug, they can't shake hands and all those sorts of things. I was talking to a friend the other day says we go to church, but we're all set, you know, so many feet apart and they've got the chairs right. arranged a certain way. And they said, I feel so, I still, I see people and I connect with them, but I can't shake hands with them. I can't hug them. And I miss that so much. And I think what people have to do is find ways to communicate. Handwritten notes to people for one another are really valuable. Uh, Calling somebody up and praying together on the phone 
is really, you know, a, an intimate or connector kind of thing. Uh, I've got a, elderly parents right now that I can't go to because of the COVID thing and I'm their caregiver, you know, and so we're doing it by phone right now and, and I would go if we had to, but I'm having to protect them right now because where I live, the COVID thing is off the map. I mean, we, we can't even go out here without wearing masks and maintaining social distance. We're fined if we're caught out in public wow. without the mask on. So uh, you have to watch for that, you know, as well. But there are ways that we can connect and show, you know, you, you may not be able to show the frontal hug or the side hug or the handshake, but what you want to do is look at other areas so like voice interchanges, uh, written notes are awesome, brief text, uh, you know, from a distance, I love you or whatever we can do at that point. We have to be aware of those other avenues and be more dependent upon them right now. Nothing will fully compensate for the loss of the physical hug. There's a way that we're made to need that. So, yeah. you know, could, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, well, for so long, we, we've become a text-based culture where we send people text messages. We communicate on social media like Facebook and Twitter, where we talk to people, friends, family through texting. And we didn't notice until that was all we could do, how much we took for granted face-to-face -face contact and, and yeah. visiting families and stuff. And I, I think that for, for, for a lot of folks, I think there's a wake up call here that, you know, you, whenever this is blows over, get off your phones and, and get off, <laughs> go see people. And your electronic device. Right. And go have face-to-face -face conversations with people, you yeah. know, instead of with people you barely know that live three States away that you, found on 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 the internet because it yeah I, I think that really that there is something true about that physical contact and and with my close friends i'm a hugger i'm not just a hugger for you know acquaintances or whatever but it's like uh, without without your church family being able to do that that really does take a toll on people who are otherwise think of themselves like i tend to think of myself as as rock solid, you know, I'm, I'm the doctrine of immutability works for me too. I just, you know, uh, or impassibility, whatever. I'm, I'm just a solid rock and that's actually not true. And, and as time goes on and you have less contact with people, less personal contact with people, it yeah. even takes its toll on me and I don't even like people that much. So, <laughs> so I, I imagine, I, I imagine a lot of people are doing much worse than I Oh, and your students just panicked over your grading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. But I imagine. Well, I, I think again, and I would say homiletics is your field, not mine, but I would like to even insert just real quickly. I think for pastors who are doing online types of teaching with their people, I've known the pastors who are using Facebook, people are on YouTube, all kinds of things that they're doing to connect with their congregations. And one of the things I would encourage is you try to find ways that, that you're, you know, you're expressive toward them and that you give an, people can read whether you love them or not. It may be a little fuzzy for a little while, but with time they can kind of tell who cares and who doesn't, but find ways even in your preaching to communicate compassion, not just emphasize the compassion of Christ, but you, you, the pastor's compassion for them as well. I was listening to a pastor oh, a month or so ago, a very large church, and he looked into the camera. It was on YouTube, and he told his people how much he loved them. He said, I'm, I'm just 
sick of not being able to see you. Man, that, I, he's not even my pastor. I just, somebody told me about him and I listened, but it was really meaningful. And one other quick thing is pastors need to be careful here, all of us, that we don't minimize sin. It's, you know, uh, we're kind, we need to help people to understand God hasn't changed. Sin is still very real. And the wages of sin are very, very real. So I would encourage, you know, people who are preaching and teaching and reaching out, don't beat people up. Don't, you know, don't enjoy telling people they're going to the bat to hell or something. But we do need to be sure that we're still teaching, preaching the full counsel of God. Amen. And so that's not in counseling per se. That that's your world homiletics. But I just wanted to put that in. Well, homiletics <laughs> is more Dr. Elliot's. Where I teach one course uh, in, in the preaching, but. Um, the, the, uh, speaking of pastors and, and you could even say deacons and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and, and at the church, what are some practical things that they need to be doing right now to make sure the people in their charge, their flock or their, their small group or whatever, what are the, what should they be doing right now for their people and their, their, their fellow brothers and sisters from church? Well, one simple thing, that's to keep the communication open from both ends. In other words, we're communicating to them our, our compassion for them, our understanding, our appreciation for them. Telling people that you value them and are thankful for them and their contributions is huge. You know, I, again, I'm not into flattery or anything like that. Make sure it's true. Yeah. But, you know, make sure that you're communicating to people that they matter to you. And as you do that, that opens up. See, a lot of people think, well, he's just calling me because he has to or something. And so they go, well, I'm fine when they're not fine. But if they sense that you really care, and, and again, I don't want people to be codependent. I don't. The only person I'm okay with you being codependent on is the Lord. Okay, You can be totally dependent on him and look to him all the time. But you can still show people, look, I care for you. And uh, with time, then that will allow them to say, well, I need to tell you, man, I lost my job. They shut down the business. We're not doing well. We're finding things in our marriage that we didn't know, you know, were cracks in the foundation. And this is showing what the reality is, how we haven't been working on our spiritual lives, our relational lives, our parenting. And I'm overwhelmed. Mm. And see, and see, people have to be able to share back without feeling like that the other person is going to use them to elevate themselves. You know, if you said to me, Jim, I'm having financial difficulties now because, you know, I lost my job and I go, well, you know what? You should have been saving. Shame on you. You know, <laughs> yeah. what have I done for you? And there may be some truth in that, but to say, hey, listen, who is your provider? You know, Maybe you didn't do your best in the past, but today is the first day of the rest of your life. And I'll give credit to Total Serial there for that statement. <laughs> but to come back and to say, you know, what do we do from here? And that's, you have to have hope. And hope comes from knowing, I may not know the way out, but to know there is a way to deal with this. Right. And if people, people can work through pretty much anything if, they, if there's hope. If you lose hope, anxiety, depression, hopelessness consumes you so quickly. It's like there's an empty void there and that hopelessness is looking for somewhere to go. And it 
you know, I, I personally think that the ultimate enemy, Satan, is there to kind of foster that a little bit. But whatever somebody believes, you know, there, there has to be that that hope. And so, you know, maybe they are in a really desperate situation. And, and maybe what they need is to plug into some good, solid Christian stewardship person who can help them kind of arrange their finances and do some things like that. People need to have hope and they need to have some sense that I will work through this. It's going to be tough and I have to have perseverance and resilience to do it, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah. One of the things that I always think of when, when that happens, I've, various churches that I've been a part of when somebody loses their job and that, that really does, you know, and, and maybe they get unemployment, maybe they don't, you know, depending on what kind of job you had and why you got laid off. Um, and, and COVID-19, you get a stimulus check, but most of that went to that first month's rent and you're trying to figure out the rest of it, you know? So in that kind of situation, I've always been thinking that one way to give hope, to people just using this example other examples of marriages falling apart i you know i'm not the guy to talk to i'm the happiest married guy i know except for maybe you of course uh but but i, mm. I do there is there <laughs> well i know you're right she's a wonderful lady she is uh so i i don't know but that but with financial needs i know that whenever churches pull together a little bit of money, bring some food, things like that. When people have real immediate needs that that may not give them all the hope that, 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 that they're looking for, but it gives them enough to have hope. And, you know, so, so yeah. practical things like giving when they're in need, in addition to the emotional and spiritual support, that's how you create hope when, 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 yeah. when people are, are, are losing the hope, because like you said, once once they become hopeless that's that's that takes an act of god to move them back because i i i have not been there personally but i have seen it and i have seen life spiral out of control where it ended you know badly as opposed to getting yeah. better so i do think that you're right they need to they need to demonstrate genuine interest in the lives of of their people and and be able to tell when I'm fine is not the truth because I, I say I'm fine. I'm, I'm good at telling everyone I'm fine, even if I'm not, because I don't want to get into it with yeah. anyone in particular. But if I don't get into it, I'm going to enter that spiral. So how, how do you tell when someone's not fine when they say they're fine? I think everyone wants to know the answer to that. Well, one on the hopeless thing, the way we're wired because of our fallen nature, we tend to gravitate toward the negative. In other words, if somebody comes into your business and they have a, a, a negative experience, they tell 13 people is what the research seems to indicate. If they have a positive experience, they tell three. And so people have a tendency to default toward the negative. And I think it's because of the fallen nature of man. And so what happens with hopelessness is it continues to spiral downward. And then ultimately, you know, there's a, there's usually a, a very a negative catastrophic ending to that. And so when somebody looks at you and says, I'm fine, you may have to in that situation say, okay, now I want you to promise me something. I'm going to believe you right now, but I want you to promise me that you trust that I care for you and that when you're, when you need to talk, you'll touch base with me. 
Because sometimes when you ask somebody, they know something's out of line, but they haven't quite figured out what it is yet. And so they're in the discovery process. So when they look at you, they, they're not sure. Is this delayed grief that I'm experiencing? Is there other, some, some other sense of loss? Have I lost sight of the truth? They don't know themselves. They just know that the emotions are delivering messages of hopelessness and despair, but they don't know why. Hmm. And, and, you know, and so what you can do is keep the door open. And then jot down in your planner, I'm going to call him back in three days or, <laughs> or, or I'm going to send him a note this afternoon. Hey, listen, thanks for taking time to talk with me today. I always enjoy interacting with you. And handwritten notes are very, very, very powerful. I know everybody's down on the USMAL. I'm very aware of that. <laughs> but I know when I get a handwritten note from somebody, oh, it's just so meaningful. And probably one of the biggest things I get back from people is just a note that says, hey, love you, praying for you. God's good or you know, something like that. And, and so that can be very powerful, but what you have to do intentionality, what we have a tendency to do is y'all yeah, pray for you. And then we go, okay, I'm going to pray. Oh God, help George, you know, and then we forget it because we have so many cares in our own lives. What I have to do is maintain a calendar structure that, you know, George shared with me a prayer concern. I need to follow up. And I'll write that in my future to do list. I plan out my, I have to, and you know, with Trinity, with the number of students we have, uh, uh, with the number of people that contact us for, for help and things like that, we have to be very intentional with our time because we're still grading a lot of dissertations and all that. So we have to be focused in how we do that. So I have to write down, I need to follow up. You and I have a mutual friend right now that's going through a really you know, tough time. Yes. And you know, we both tried to reach out to him and we'll both continue to reach out to him. Right. But we have to be intentional about that because you can get distracted. And and I think a lot of times pastors get overwhelmed. And yeah. so what I would say is you can't keep that in your mind all the time. So write it down. Wednesday, I'm going to call and check on George. Just write it down. Pray for him and then, you know, put him on your prayer list and, and move on and think about yourself, your family. And, and a lot of pastors are not really good at self-care. And I know that's not our big that's not our big deal today. But pastors, if if you burn out and you lose hope, you can't help anybody else. So, being proactive and taking care of yourself is critical. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to say. We we conclude on because actually I wanted to ask you about that, or at least from a different angle. So I'm not a working pastor. I I at my church I I I fill a pew. Okay, it's the one time I get to be judgmental towards my pastor when he preaches because he's also a student here at Trinity. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. But what what can someone like what can lay people in the church? What can church members do to check on their pastors and their associate pastors and 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 Sunday school teachers? What because they have to care for so many. What are things that we can do? You say handwritten notes. It's like a lost art. And, and I, I agree with you that those seem effective and you don't have to write Shakespeare. You can write. No, you do words. not. You can write three sentences and put it in the mailbox. But yeah. But what, what should what should I be doing to, to make sure my pastor is OK and, and that my my our small group leaders are OK? And I should disclose, I, you know, I've been, I just, I'm just starting my ninth full year with Trinity, you know? Yeah. And so I have been doing this and I'm, I'm, I work full time for Trinity and I do enough counseling to maintain my license, you know, but uh, I was a pastor and I had been in, you know, for a long time and I served, you know, some churches that, you know, were ran over a thousand in Sunday school and stuff like that. And, 
so I kind of speak less as a counselor and more, I guess, in a pastoral. I'm not currently, and I haven't pastored in, in a while. But I think on the other side of the coin, I, I think one is the assurance that I'm being, that the pastor is being prayed for. And don't just assume he knows that. Just drop him a note. Dear Brother Pastor, this morning in my prayer time, I remembered you and your family. And today I pray that you'd know the love of Christ in a very specific way. Secondly, do nice things for him. And, I, and uh, you know, you might, I know people don't have a lot of money sometimes. And But even if you send him a, a gift card to a, 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 like, a, I know right now I can't eat out very effectively, but like little things like, uh, uh, maybe you get a deal on some movie passes of a good movie or something. And you, you send them to him or every once in a while I, I had people through the years that had, you know, uh, vacation properties and they let Glenda and I go and spend time there. Just tangible ways that you can express that. But a let five, me take one of the biggest. Yeah. A $5 Krispy Kreme donuts gift card to make them happy. I Bingo. Yeah. Whatever. Just anything. It's not the amount as much as, there's a tangible gift here. I didn't just, he didn't just say, bless me. He actually did bless me. Right. Now let me tell you one of the biggies. He today, you know, the church is going through some interesting dynamics right now with everything that's going on. And it's not just the COVID thing. It has to do with the notion of absolute truth and all those kinds of things. Right. And you know, the church is under assault and, and, and pastors are carrying, and a lot of people are carrying the weight. Okay. A lot of my fellow believers are just carrying the weight. And uh, pastors feel that and, and everything. Pastors need to know that there are people who, who have their backs covered. At any given time, no pastor is ever totally popular with everybody. Right. And he needs to know there's some people there that have him covered. If somebody's out spreading slander, you know, there are certain truth people who need to address that. And I remember years ago, I was serving a church. We had a staff member that somebody didn't like what he did with the Sunday school. I don't even remember what it was. Hmm. And the person that didn't like it starts spreading a rumor that he was having a sexual affair with another woman in the church. Hmm. And I took an attorney and the chairman of personnel and we went and made a call. And uh, we got that stopped right there. Wow. We did. We got it stopped right there. And I made it very clear to him, you know, and I know some people would come back and say, well, you're not supposed to use the courts. Well, in that situation, I'm not sure this guy was a believer, yeah. but that had to be stopped because this was an effective man of God. He is, he loved the Lord so much. He, I, when I was around him, I almost felt like a pagan and I was the pastor and he was a, a staff member. And yet he was far more spiritually mature than I was. I yeah. mean, you know, he'd been through, he'd been through the trials and I was not going to watch my friend and my brother be slandered like that. I just wasn't going to tolerate it. I, I knew that I might other people might come back against me but I, I just did that and I tried to protect staff people you know through the years but on the other side of it the pastor needs to know that there are people that that, that have him covered that if there's stuff out there they're there if I can borrow this from Barney Fife you know they're nipping it in the bud yeah. And uh, and and pastors need that today because the cultures out there, they're spreading rumors because all they have to do is just start. Well, I saw him down at the liquor store or, you know, what I heard that he had been looking at something on his computer or, or it, it is. Well, maybe he is looking at something. I'm hearing that from pastors. Yeah. And so people are trying to discredit them. And of course, that's the discourse out there in the world today, too. If you don't like somebody, destroy them, you know. And, and, and I think for pastors to know that there are a group of people 
who love them, believe in them. And I'm not saying those the church members condone improper conduct. Don't hear that. But right. they need to know that there's somebody there that 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 that, that it's they're standing with them. And when they preach some of the tough stuff or have to make hard decisions and they know, you know, when they make those decisions, there's going to be feedback on it. There's going to be that they have some people that still love them, looking out for them, protecting them, defending them and things like that. That is critical. And you and I both know when we did the live webinars, almost every class I did, there would be some point where somebody would share a prayer concern. I've been voted out of my church or, you know, I'm under assault right now. I'm being threatened. Would y'all pray for me? And, you know, almost every class I taught at some point that happened. Yeah. And so, uh, so and you've seen it, we get calls and all kinds of things like that. So pastors need to know that there are people who love them and are standing with them now. Amen. Well, yeah. all right. This has been a very good conversation. I hope that it has been helpful for everybody else. Any final thoughts that you want to give to our audience? I would say this on depression. Depre when you feel down, there's legitimate depression, okay? If I'm feeling kind of sad, I need to ask myself the question, what have I lost or what's kind of out of line? Or maybe I'm believing something that's not true. And so depression is a messenger. And so, you know, there, I believe there's legitimate depression. Uh, it might warn me there's something wrong with me physically. It might warn me there's something out of line in my spiritual life or whatever. So let it be the messenger, but do not allow it to be deterministic. Now, research seems to indicate that for some people, about, about up to 50%, I talked about this with anxiety, but about 50% of depression can be DNA, you know, produced. It's kind of in the DNA, the genetics. Again, that does not have to be deterministic. You have to be proactive. And so what you're doing, remember the guy, he built his house on the rock. He was preparing for the inevitable storm. And all of us, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be confessional. That's something I have to watch for every once in a while is depression in my own life. Uh, and uh, so when that happens, I know, all right, stop. Mm -hmm. I don't beat myself up. I don't go guilt or shame myself. And then I figure out, okay, what's out, what's out of line here? And then find the truth. And maybe I do need to deal with something. <laughs> maybe there's something I need to make right with somebody, something I need to confess. Maybe I'm believing something false. If people have chronic depression, I would go see my doctor and make sure that you don't have something going on, you know, that can cause harm, especially people going through deep grief, you know, to have a little something to offset a little bit of that sadness and kind of get them over the hump just a little bit. Not everybody needs that. Not everybody does. Sometimes it can be helpful to certain people, yeah. but I think with depression, you know, and, and, and again, we recognize things I'm depressed. So what I want to do is find out what's out of line and it may be several things out of line. So then I want to remove whatever that is. And then, but you always, always, always have to replace it with truth. And the truth is greater is he that is in me. I mean, you read Paul's struggles. I was pressed on every side. I almost despaired even of life. Even Jesus agonizing in the garden. Father, if there's any other way, right. let this cup pass from me. But what, what's the common thread? Jesus looked to the Father, and he trusted the ultimate plan and purpose of God. What did Paul do? Man, it got to him every once in a while. You know, you can see yeah, when he's getting that out. But ultimately, he was victorious. Why? 
because he looked to the Lord and he trusted the Lord. And we find tons and, and you know, a people in the Bible that battled. I mean, you look at, at what was it, Elijah that had the great victory on Mount Carmel right. and he's having the great revival and everything. And a few days later, he's sitting out in the desert ready to commit suicide. Pastors go through that. Man, they have a mountaintop and boom, all of a sudden they're thinking, I should be dead. I should give up the church. You got to sometimes pull back and rest and listen to the heartbeat of God. Yeah, and Paul, definitely. And Paul is a good example. If Paul can bear it all in a letter that's going to be read in front of a church, <laughs> yeah. And for centuries now, you can open up about about your own issues to somebody. But if you're, if you're feeling that, I like what you said about depression is a messenger which yeah carrying a so is anxiety too yeah that these are messengers carrying a message about something else the depression is not the thing the anxiety is not the thing it's telling you about a thing and so yeah. working that out even in your own life and with somebody else whether it's your pastor or a, a counselor or whoever that's that's vital you shouldn't let that you you, you should pay attention to the messenger don't ignore the messenger right Cause it just gets right. worse if you do. So yeah, that you give into the messenger and he, he keeps talking louder and louder. And there you are. All you're getting is one message. It's hopeless. You're, you're doomed. Mm. And that, or, and there are people that's their thought pattern. Yeah. And you have to recognize it, remove it and replace it. And listen, God said in Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart and a new mind. And that's a prayer for me ongoing. God help me to have the heart and mind that honors you no matter what else comes. Amen. Yeah. Well, I like that. De depression and anxiety are messengers. And then I learned another phrase today I'd never heard before in my life. And that's what's sleep, that? Sleep hygiene. I've never heard. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder hey, if you and, I, well, you and I might come back and do one of those. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, definitely you've got to come back. So uh, you were a big hit last time you, you, you talked to me. So I, I always like to have you on because People get sick of hearing what I have to say, and people really... Oh, no, they don't. <laughs> well, they really do, and they, they really enjoyed what you had to say last time, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you on, need to have you on more regularly than this, so uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I'll let you pick the topic next time, and I will... Oh, boy. Yeah, and, and I'll put the burden on you to, to, to carry it, but I do thank you for being here. Is there a... Uh, you don't have any social media accounts, do you? Well, I'm not allowed to, uh, so I don't do Facebook or oh, any okay. of those things. So, so, so. Yeah, if somebody wants to communicate through Trinity is the way. Jay Chatham at trinitysim.edu. Right. So, so they can't follow. Yeah, they can't follow him on Twitter. Uh, mm -mm, I don't do any of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's legal reasons. Oh sure. Uh, it is. And, and I don't have a Facebook page. I don't really want one. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be ugly, <laughs> but, but it's just not to my advantage because I could say something and then somebody use it against me later. Right. And so, 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 if you, so if you want more Dr. Jim Chatham, you need to audit his courses at Trinity College of Bible and Theological Seminary for 35 years. That is the best way to do it. And if you, yes, or if you can learn formally by, formally by becoming a student at our seminary, we'd love to have you. Dr. Amen. Chatham, Thank you for being here. I appreciate it so much. You have a good one. Thank you, Dr. Pritchett. God's mercies on all of our listeners. Amen.